you are all checked in now, so you can just take a seat, and the doctor will see you shortly. Right, okay, sir, I'm just going to get you to step on the scales for a second. Have you considered losing some weight out with your joint pain? speak. You can't be fat and happy. It's a tea that you drink, and it melts all your belly fat. All right, class. Who can tell me what a healthy snack looks like? Before we start you on treatment, we're going to need you to lose some weight. You'll never have a baby unless you lose weight. Thank you for waiting. The fat doctor will see you now. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fat Doctor podcast. I'm Dr. Natasha Lamy, and today I'm joined by New York City based board certified endocrinologist Dr. Greg Dodell. He is a friend and an ally, and many of you will know him from Instagram as everything underscore endocrine. I'm really excited to be speaking to him today all about weight stigma in the medical field. So let's get straight to the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, Greg. I may ask you right at the end of this to do a dance because it is technically friday when we're recording this so i may be asking you to dance later that's true before we do that before we get too silly thank you so much for joining me today i have really enjoyed getting to know you in that kind of virtual way this is the first time we've ever spoken face to face except not quite face to face but at least over a camera and Everybody that follows me also follows you. Our names get put together a lot, and that makes me very happy. Yeah, I'm honored that that does happen. I'm thinking if I'm going to be associated with anyone, like, this is the doctor I want to associate myself with. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. So I'm so glad that so glad that we're here together and get to talk. People do know who you are, but will probably want to know more about who you are. So why don't we start by you just kind of telling us who you are, what you do, and how you got into this kind of weight-inclusive medical care. All right. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to be here with you. And, and I've learned so much from you on, on social media. I'm so glad we're like meeting more than we have through messaging and WhatsApp. Maybe like in person one day would be awesome. Cross the pond, right? Um, come to New York or vice versa. So I grew up in, in California. My practice, my prior practice is in New York, Central Park Endocrinology. I always wanted to be a doctor since I was six, seven, eight, something like that. Wanted to be a pediatrician initially just because I love kids and I just thought that would be a great career. And then in medical school, I had a really good adult endocrinology uh, course and, and clinic and just fell in love with endocrinology and just that it affects everything in the whole body and that you can see patients from 18 and in the adult world, 18 till hundreds, you know, and, and across the spectrum and people that are coming in, just not knowing what's going on with their body versus people that have a condition that they've been dealing with their whole life. And you can kind of just chime in and try and help them and across the age spectrum. And to me, that's just, that's great. And if you make the right diagnosis, the right treatment plan, you can really improve someone's quality of life and, and their relationships. And, and that's awesome. We, we study medicine and we practice medicine differently. So in the UK, you, you don't do like pre-med, you go straight into a medical degree. Uh, not everybody nowadays is, I think, a little less common to go straight into it, but I did. I was 18 mm-hmm. years old, studied medicine, two years of just like complete and nothing clinical, and right. then three years on the wards and doing, going through all my different rotations. And then believe it or not, then you're qualified. And so you're 23. I was 23 years old. I was a doctor. People trusted me with their lives, which was crazy. And then you spend a great deal of time then uh, training to become 
the kind of expert, the, I don't even know what you call it, but we call it a consultant. And that, yeah. I mean, my, my generation are now like just about becoming consultants. So it probably takes you 20 years, maybe not quite 20, but you know, near enough to 20 years. How does it work in the States? I'm really fascinated. So you go through general school, you finish high school and most people apply to college and just either do like a pre-med degree or even like I was a psychology major just because I like psychology. Some people, you know, study history or whatever. And as long as you take the core medical courses, the prerequisites, then at that point, usually in like the third year of undergraduate, so like age 21 or so, then you apply for medical school, which usually starts like 20, age 22, 23. Then you do four years of the medical school. After that's residency, which we call residency, which I don't know, same term or not. And then usually, so for endocrine, we do internal medicine for three years. And then two years or three years of an endocrinology fellowship. So like a five to six year thing um, as far as training goes. Some people do go into like a seven year medical program after high school, which like cuts off one year basically. But that's not that common. Yeah, so it's a long road for all of us, regardless, you know. <laughs> right. And then, like, now you kind of have your own practice. And, and do you see all different types of endocrinology? Do you specialize in anything or is it just endocrinology? Yeah, so I'm, I'm general endocrinology. So diabetes and thyroid and PCOS and osteoporosis and low testosterone, the whole the whole thing. So it's a lot to keep up with. But I find that interesting because, you know, I think just treating one part of endocrinology while is awesome and like really, really super specialized. I like kind of the variety even in my, in my day, but a lot of endocrinologists just do diabetes or just do thyroid or they're known as a bone specialist. So, you know, that's awesome too. And they're probably very, very knowledgeable in that area. Fantastic. So you've said two things that have really pinged my radar, and that's diabetes and PCOS, because of all the conversations that I have with people online, those are the most common ones without a doubt, where people are experiencing so much weight stigma, and they just feel completely helpless to deal with it. So we talked a little bit about weight-inclusive care. Like, How did you get into this? How did you even become aware of this concept of weight-inclusive care? Where did it come from for you? Yes, so I owe it a thousand percent to my wife, Alexis Connison, at the Anti-Diet Plan, who's going to be a guest with you, which is, which is awesome. So I don't have to promote her too much, which I usually, I usually do. Yeah, so she, her and I both kind of came up and like grew up in the, the metabolic world and we were doing research actually in the same hospital and her, her dissertation was in bariatric surgery, you know, long before she got into the weight inclusive world. And so as a psychologist, she really was seeing from her, from her clients, the stigma that was going on and the emotional eating and things like that. And she got into the mindfulness and the weight inclusive and the haze and, maybe, you know, I was very slow on kind of incorporating that into my practice. And she was just like, even if you're not all there, you have to get there. And I started getting referrals from people in the field once like I was starting to show interest in getting that this is really the way to treat patients. And then as those patients started coming into my practice, just looking in their eyes and hearing their story and even just saying, all right, well, let's focus on the behaviors, not focus on the weight. And, you know, as I started kind of doing my reading and figuring out how to talk to patients from this paradigm, I just felt it. It just felt natural. The interactions with those patients was like so fulfilling because I knew 
this was something different for them than what they had been through. And they were all in and I was all in and it was great. You know, like I just could see that the patient care and their outcomes are going to be next level, you know. So that's that's kind of the journey. Do you find that that's actually manifesting in your own personal anecdotal, you know, experience? Are you finding that actually your diabetic patients that come in who maybe have a poorly controlled, you know, blood glucose, and then you kind of make them feel for the first time probably in their lives that it's not their fault and that you don't have to be fixated on weight? Do you find that compliance improves and that health outcomes improve? Yeah, I mean, I think patients are coming back and, and feeling, you know, liberated and what they could do and me just saying correct it's not your fault you may just need more insulin to overcome the resistance or you know like all the years of like weight cycling and all this stuff that you know again is not your fault but that's just kind of what happened may mean that you need more medication because your pancreas may not be pumping out the insulin and you may not be as responsive to the medications as maybe you had been before and you know let's let's work on this together and I think that that team-based approach you know, is important because hopefully we all have the same objective, right? For our patients to have the best outcomes and have a good quality of life and not develop complications from whatever condition we're treating. And if there's kind of this discrepancy in goals and also tone and all those things, the care's you know, not going to come back, you know, like it's just that simple. Amazing. And it's so true. Now, I am not an expert in diabetes at all. But as you probably know, in the UK, the majority of diabetes care takes place in general practice. So GPs will look after, I would say, about 80% of diabetics. Only the very complicated cases will end up with an endocrinologist because it's the NHS and we, <laughs> we, we that's how we behave. So I used to run a diabetic clinic when I was uh, in my previous job. And I can remember having this constant heartbreak almost that patients would come in almost terrified of what I was going to say, very much apologetic. I know I haven't lost enough weight and they were fixated on their weight. And I would look at them and I would say, actually, your HbA1c is pretty good. Your blood pressure is great. Your cholesterol is fine. You're very well controlled. Like, what, what, What's happening here? Why are you apologizing to me? I was actually going to congratulate you and give you a good pat on the back. Right, right, right. I think it happens the moment here that you get diagnosed, that it is your fault that you brought this on yourself. And if you're fat, that's the way you're treated. If you're not fat, it's an unfortunate thing that happened to you. But if you are in a bigger body, which is, let's face it, the majority of our patients, maybe because of the chronic dieting, maybe because of the pancreatic insufficiency, all of that stuff is contributing. And they come in feeling like they have done something wrong and they spend the rest of their lives trying to diet. And it's heartbreaking for me. Is it possible to treat diabetes in a weight inclusive way? That's my question. I mean, you just said it basically, like you're going to pat them on the back because their A1C is good, their cholesterol is good. You know, all those things that we look for as objective markers to preventing complications, you know, yes, absolutely. And, you know, maybe if there's more insulin requirements because of insulin resistance or whatever it could be, then we treat it, you know, but we don't have to say, yeah, your A1C is awesome, but you really need to lose more weight or you need to lose any weight, you know, like BMI or not, like, you know, if the goal is to have the diabetes controlled, we can do that. And, and we're fortunate enough that science has advanced so much that there's so many great options out there for, for diabetes medications that have cardiovascular benefits, kidney protection, all those great, great things that it doesn't have to be weight focused in order to control diabetes. 
Amazing. I mean, people are going to listen to this and they're, they're going to have their minds blown, especially people listening in the UK, maybe also in the US. But in the UK, you, you know, the principle is weight loss. It is the primary focus when you come in for your diabetic check. It is the first thing that gets measured. It is the first thing that gets discussed. Interestingly, I noticed that a lot of people fixate on A1, A1C, they fixate on weight. They don't really talk that much about cholesterol, blood pressure, kidney function. Actually, the things that you and I know are you know, probably the most important thing, you know, we, we need to get these things under control, but they don't focus on that. A lot of my patients were coming in fairly well controlled sugar levels, but it was, you know, really good blood pressures and really good cholesterols and their kidney functions were perfect and they were exercising and they were getting good nutrition, but they remained fat and sometimes they were on insulin and it was really hard for them to lose weight. Why do you think it is that we have become so fixated? Why is it when you're saying it's possible and it is possible, we know it's possible. Why do we still feel the need to fixate on weight? What's what's your opinion on that? I mean, I think a lot of it probably came about from research showing the correlation between between weight and metabolic markers, right? And as as we post about and read about and all this stuff from our weight inclusive community, if you don't control for other social determinants of health and weight stigma and weight cycling, that correlation is going to exist, you know, and it's hard to tease out. And I know, you know, some people are looking at doing work to really like, how do we separate outcomes with regard to behaviors from BMI and from weight loss? Because I think the first thing that happens generally if you look at a study where people lose weight, like a lifestyle intervention, the weight loss is credited for the reason why those metabolic markers are improved instead of the the fact that, yes, the people are moving more, they're eating more protein and vegetables and fruits and, you know, whatever, and they're getting calls weekly from a dietitian or from a counselor or whoever. Those things play a huge role. So you can't, you know, you have to tease that out. So I think it's easy to grab on to, to the weight loss as the main, you know, outcome that, that caused the improved metabolic condition versus I think there's a lot of other variables. The same could be true the other way, right? So like if someone gains weight, and the blood sugar goes higher, is it the weight gain itself? Or is it the stress and like all the other or new medications, you know, antipsychotic psychotic medications and things like that, that cause weight gain? You know, is it the weight gain? Is it the medication? Like whatever you got to look, it's so complicated, you know, like as, as we all know. So, you know, and obviously industry and all these kind of things is behind it and the billion dollar weight loss business and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, my hope is that there will be some healthcare professional listening to these podcasts, you know, as an endocrinologist who, you know, I, I always say there's a brilliant study, Sean Phelan and his team did this brilliant study on medical students, looked at 4,732. I've memorized that number. That's how many times I've read the study. And they looked at the medical students, first year medical students, and found that 67% or 66%, two thirds of them had explicit weight bias. They were, they blamed fat people. They disliked fat people. They were afraid of gaining weight themselves. And 75% of them had implicit unconscious bias. So even the ones that didn't have that kind of conscious explicit bias, many of them had implicit bias themselves. Most of them did. And then you go through medical training. And I'm guessing our medical training was similar in that BMI almost became a way to describe a patient. And it still is. 
when I'm getting a letter from a from the hospital, from a specialist, when I'm, you know, when I see a handover board, when you go into a maternity department and you look at the the, 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 the board with all the patients, when you look at any patient's notes, an ultrasound report, anything nowadays, it's like the person is described like, you know, 56 year old female BMI 32. Like that's how people describe you. And I guess when you're learning that way, when you come into medical school already biased, and then in medical school, people describe people by their weight. It's like we we don't know how to work outside of those parameters. It's, just, it's become our language. It's become our way of life. If there's a health professional out there listening to this right now, just completely blown away by the fact that there is an endocrinologist out there going, we don't need to fixate on weight to treat diabetes. We can manage diabetes without fixating on weight. Obviously, it's been a process for you described how you got there. But how would you advise other doctors or other healthcare professionals? What would you advise them to read? What would you advise them to do to explore this issue? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, one way to think about it is that by making behavior recommendations, health promoting, promoting behavior, sleep and stress management and nutrition and, and movement, people may lose weight. And, you know, that's just part of the behavior changes. They also may gain weight because if they have uncontrolled diabetes, then they'll start retaining fat and muscle and the weight may go up. And then are we going to say, well, you're gaining weight, but your A1C went from 10 to 6. So then that doesn't make sense, right? So so like you can't have it both ways, right? So I I think that's why weight is, is tricky and why that shouldn't be like the surrogate marker for for health, you know, because people gain, if someone has hyperthyroidism, right, they'll lose weight very quickly, but they're not, you know, they're, it's because their thyroid is not controlled and they'll gain weight when we control the thyroid. So, you know, all the, all these variables. And I think, you know, looking at, for me, if our objective, which again, to reiterate is like to take care of patients the best that we can to have the best outcomes, I think we have to look at weight stigma. And we have to look at weight cycling and we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the patients in larger bodies that are like seeing their charts potentially or like their visit summaries that call them out for BMI, like despite having really good metabolic markers or like that they're coming into the office and they're, they can't fit in the chair or that the blood pressure cuff is too tight. No matter how good a doctor you may be, if that is not something that you're aware of and you're not practicing with that in mind, that is causing harm to the patients. So like if anything to read, read the studies on weight stigma, you know, and look critically at the data on on weight loss and things like that and say, well, did they control for all these other determinants of health? And like, let's tease this out more. Absolutely. That's so true. When I'm talking to colleagues, when I'm talking to healthcare practitioners, the first thing I say to them is that weight stigma causes so much harm because not only are we, not only are we allowing that to influence our own treatment decisions, there are studies that say we're less inclined to examine patients in bigger bodies, that we are, that it definitely, you know, we believe that they're less likely to comply, that we're less likely to give them health and lifestyle advice, you know, that we believe them to be weak-willed, having lack of self-discipline, so, you know, that we may not try certain treatments, we may also delay certain treatments, you know, how many times have I seen somebody who's like, you know, got a little touch of high blood pressure, and they've been told, go lose some weight, and it'll get better. It, It might, but also, what's more likely to happen is that person will fail to lose the weight, never come back, and be walking around 
around with high blood pressure for the next five years and just not come back and see a doctor. Right. And that's the other thing that we do is that we, we, we harm our patients because we destroy the relationship we have between our patients. We destroy this, you know, this, this ability for our patients to trust us, to communicate with us, to, to comply with our advice, you know, to, to have that trust and think, okay, I'm going to do what my doctor says. And most importantly, they avoid us. They don't come back and see us because they're scared of us. They don't want to get shamed again. So they avoid the doctor. I think that most of us, and probably including myself over the years, we don't get that feedback. We don't know what the patient's necessarily thinking when they walk out of that room, unless they're kind of like empowered enough, which bravo if they are to call us out. But yeah, I mean, they, we don't know. And we see thousands of patients. Like, I don't know if unfortunately, if I made someone cry after the visit or like something I said or my tone or my look or whatever. And, and without that feedback, it's hard to, it's hard to get change. And maybe just by having these dialogues and whatever, and hopefully other healthcare providers are listening to these things to say, this is what's happening. Like the patient may not tell you and you may never even realize that the patient didn't come back because we're just busy. But that may be the reason, and I don't think anyone wants that to happen. No, I, I 100% agree. I think there are a few doctors out there that are arrogant enough to not care, but I think I would say the vast majority of us are quite horrified at the idea of upsetting a patient to the point that they cry after, they, you know, after they've seen us. And we don't, we don't want to make patients cry. That's not, that's not in our DNA. It's not why we went into this job. But I want to tell you my personal experience now. I'm going to own up. I said I was going to share this story one day, and this is my story. I am terrified of diabetes and specifically of diabetes. I am not terrified of any other medical condition, only diabetes. And I think part of that stems from the fact that in my third pregnancy, I, I developed gestational diabetes quite late on and I, it wasn't handled particularly well. And the care that I received was very, very weight focused. I was told to lose weight in the pregnancy, which was kind of difficult to do because you're growing a baby. And then I decided that um, I was given the option of uh, to treat medically or to try and manage it with my diet. And I believed in my heart that if I didn't manage it with my diet, I had failed as a human being. Like I might as well just end my life today because if I can't control this with diet, I'm a failure. So I did, I did control it with diet and it was horrible. And it was so horrible and traumatic that at the time that it was all going on, my mum had been telling me that she had this like abdominal pain, but she kind of downplayed it because she always downplayed everything. So she had this vague abdominal pain that she was kind of wittering about a little bit in the background, but I don't want to bother you. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. I'll just take something over the counter for it. And for two, three months, you know, she mentioned it a couple of times. She was also like doing all of this exercise. She was like really proud of herself, super healthy. And mum was like, yeah, I've lost weight. Look at me. I'm amazing. It's finally working. And then one day she was able to pull her jeans down without undoing this button. She was like, look at me. That happened over a period of three months. I was dealing with my pregnancy. And then right towards the end of my pregnancy, I was about 35, 36 weeks pregnant at the time. I walked in to see my mum one day and she was completely jaundiced, like yellow, super yellow. And that was February by March, just before I was about to give birth, she'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she died three months later. And I look back now and I always, I mean, thank you. Thank you for saying sorry. I wanted to tell you that story because what's really interesting, the thing that stuck with me beyond all of that was that I'm not stupid. I know that abdominal pain and weight loss is serious business in a person of a certain age. My mum told me that she, she was, you know, she was losing weight. She had abdominal pain and I missed it because I was so focused on that stupid blood sugar machine every few hours and like measuring every carbohydrate 
that nothing else mattered. I couldn't think beyond that. And I think I associate now diabetes with that. I've talked to a lot of people, not everyone has had the same experience as me, but I've spoken to a lot of people that have had GD and we're all in the same boat. We refuse to go and get, and I've not done it. I've not had it done yet. I refuse to go and get my A1C done because I'm terrified of what it will show. So Dr. Greg, <laughs> I need your advice. <laughs> you need to tell me something. So you're you're scared about it because of like the association, the emotion that it came with, like at the time, or like you're scared that you're not gonna be able to control it? Like what is the scary part of it? I just I cannot help but feel like having diabetes would reflect so poorly on me. And it isn't that crazy? It's the only thing. Like, if I was to develop skin cancer because I sat out in the sun for too long, I wouldn't think that's my fault. I think if I had developed lung cancer after smoking too long, I probably would think that was my fault, but I don't smoke. But if I were to develop diabetes, as far as I'm concerned, that is because I couldn't control my eating. And I'm quite healthy. I, I do. I am quite a healthy person and I have got a very, you know, a good diet and I do exercise, yada, yada, yada. I have bad genetics in the sense that a lot of diabetes in the family, nothing I can do about that. But do you think looking at the literature is is it my fault if i have diabetes is it my fault that's the question i want you to answer i guess no because you just said it i mean a lot of this is genetic and a lot of it's things that we can't control you know whether it's stress or medications you know all these other factors i mean we can only do what we can do right i mean we could try our best to control you know making sure we're not a sedentary lifestyle and making sure we're getting protein and fruits and vegetables and managing our stress those things we can control and look if someone developed diabetes you know who had a genetic predisposition and all these things but they're like i'm doing everything right like so i I saw a patient recently who you know had a very high a1c and she was like i can't do anything else i'm eating well, like I'm moving around and all this stuff. It's genetics. Like you're just not producing insulin and let's put you on some insulin so you don't have to beat yourself up over it and let's control this so you feel good and your energy is going to be good and all these things. So yes, if that were to happen, like it's not your fault. I see plenty of people, you know, with genetic predispositions and, and gestational diabetes is is largely, you know, a component of insulin resistance and genetics and all across, you know, the size spectrum, you know, for sure. I don't know if that's a good answer. Thank you. It's a it's what I needed to hear. And I would just say, I would say, as I said before, if someone gets diabetes, whether it's their fault or not, which it's not their fault, but if it, whatever, if it was their fault, like we can control it and like, let's deal with the current situation and the current clinical situation rather than pointing fingers and blaming because the stress and and all that is going to be very detrimental to controlling blood sugar. Thank you. That was like the best answer ever. It's what I needed to hear. I knew that when I talked to you about this, I would feel better. And I do. I feel like a weight has been lifted off my chest. I needed to hear it from an endocrinologist. Now, I'm going to ask you a little bit about PCOS because that's the other question I get asked all the time. PCOS is one of these really weird conditions that kind of spans two kind of completely different fields of medicine, right? And like you've got your gynecologist who think one way and you've got your endocrinologist who almost not disagree, but you guys approach PCOS from a very different point of view. In the UK, PCOS is almost universally managed by and diagnosed by gynecologists, which is why I think it is so poorly managed in the UK. I'm really curious to know a little bit about PCOS from an endocrinologist's point of view. Like, what can you tell us about it? 
Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a clinical diagnosis. And, you know, again, that also goes across a spectrum of size. You know, people, I think, traditionally think about PCOS and insulin resistance with larger bodied people, but there is like this quote unquote, like lean PCOS, you know, so so that's the first thing to like dispel, you know, I think is that it's not just body habitus and weight and, you know, an unhealthy lifestyle or whatever, all that stigma that comes with it. And it's a clinical diagnosis that usually presents itself with some constellation of irregular periods, acne, it could be hair growth, what we call hirsutism, hair thinning, um, and then some metabolic things as well. It could be high blood sugar, it could be a slower metabolism and all these things. And I think they've talked about changing the name from PCOS to something that's more metabolically, you know, named because it really is a metabolic condition. I mean, not everyone that has polycystic ovarian syndrome has cysts on the ovaries. So it's kind of like a misnomer. And I think that's, you know, one, one thing, but you know, part of the reason why gynecologists probably involved because it is irregular periods and commonly people are put on birth control pills or, you know, something like that to help regulate the cycle. But we as endocrinologists are all about, you know, using the birth control pills because the estrogen and testosterone ratios help. But we also try and lower insulin resistance because that's really the driving force, right? So insulin resistance can cause higher blood sugars and higher insulin levels can increase what we call androgens. And androgens are like testosterone and DHEA and these hormones that cause the symptoms. So by lowering insulin resistance, that can help. And I think, you know, historically, and not even historically, currently, like the thought is like weight loss, weight loss, weight loss will lower insulin resistance, cut out carbs, you know, all this stuff. Even if that were were the best treatment and the most effective in the long run, I think that's just not sustainable. And that's kind of, you know, my focus is, is let's figure out a way that, you know, we can sustain this and have good outcomes without people beating themselves up over the fact that they, you know, ate some carbs. And also, if someone is insulin resistant, you need carbs and you need sugars in order for energy, right? So if you cut out carbohydrates, which are, you know, supposed to be a major food group, you know, for us, that can cause, you know, changes in mood and fatigue and things like that. And it just becomes a vicious cycle. So learn it. And there's a lot of great dietitians out there, you know, who will teach people how to pair the carbohydrates with the proteins and the fibers and all these things so that it's not roller coaster ride of blood sugar, but really like a slow absorption of the sugar. And in conjunction will help energy and mood and all those things that we're really trying to optimize. That was a really long winded answer, but hopefully that made some sense. No, it, it was the perfect answer because this is, I think, the key where it's all going wrong for a lot of women. What's happening is, you know, as you know, women mostly present with symptoms of PCOS quite young ar- around their adolescence and uh, young adult life. And in the UK, what happens is the diagnosis is almost universally made because of an ultrasound scan, which is A, wrong, as you've said, like it's much more of a clinical diagnosis. But I think now doctors are getting better of making the clinical diagnosis independent of the scan. I personally don't scan them unless we need to, because why? Like right. scans are not cool. If you've got a vagina and you've had to have an intra- you know, intravaginal scan, you know it's not nice you don't want to have one unless you need to so that's the first thing and then what happens in the UK is you're told well there's nothing we can do you just need to lose weight and the only other thing that we can do is we can put you on the birth control pill the you know the combined 
oral contraceptive pill which has estrogen and progesterone in it. The problem is that in the UK, once you hit a certain body mass index, you're not allowed to have that pill anymore. Like no one will prescribe it to you. And I think it's not so bad in the US, Correct. but in the UK now, you're a, a, what we call MEC category three. And that means that you cannot have this pill. We won't prescribe it. Interestingly, the guidance actually says that the, the risks outweigh the benefits and therefore it shouldn't be prescribed. But actually, that's talking about contraception. And we're not talking about contraception here. We're talking about PCOS. So my argument to begin with is, hang on a second, this is the the benefits of the combined contraceptive pill for someone with PCOS is much higher than it is just contraception. That's a different conversation. What then people struggle with is they're like, well, what am I supposed to do? I keep gaining weight. My periods are more irregular. I've got loads of hirsutism. My acne's really bad and people won't give me the pill anymore. And I'm getting fatter and I don't know what to do. Like, what am I supposed to do? Are there any other things that people can do? You said managing insulin resistance. Like, how would you advise people to, to do that? So we use medication, you know, if we need to. And again, just going back to our conversation about diabetes and not, not the person's fault, you know, necessarily to have insulin resistance. And we'll focus on all the health promoting behaviors and things like that, that will improve insulin sensitivity. But, you know, a lot of times you need medication, just like if someone has high blood pressure, or diabetes or hypothyroidism, like you need medication, and it's not a failure. It's just that's just the physiology of the body. And again, across the weight spectrum, PCOS does occur. So you can't just say, you know, insulin resistance just because someone's fat. Like, you know, people lean PCOS also have been demonstrated to have insulin resistance. So we use metformin, which is a common, you know, medication for type 2 diabetes, but very good for insulin resistance. And we're also starting to use um, these GLP-1 agonists, which work really well and they're injectables. There is a oral one, but they work to lower insulin resistance and also help to regulate blood sugars, you know, after meals. So we use those. And of course, those GLP-1s, which we use a lot for diabetes, are now being put in the category of weight loss medications, which makes it a little bit of a tricky conversation because if someone's coming to see me or see an endocrinologist who's trying to provide weight-inclusive care and then they're prescribing medication for diabetes or for PCOS, which we know will work, and yes, they may or may not lose weight, but then they're thinking, well, you just gave me a weight loss medication and they're seeing ads for it as like a weight loss medication. So... You know, I think you almost have to like clarify and say, hey, I'm giving this to you for insulin resistance. I would give this to any of my patients across, you know, the BMI spectrum who have high blood sugar or who have PCOS. And I'm not doing this to help you lose weight. I'm doing this because I know physiologically it's going to work for you or I hope it's going to work for you. Amazing. And uh, you brought it up. So I'm now going to ask you, how do you feel about the fact that these medications are now being promoted as as appetite suppressants, as weight loss medications? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I, I use a ton of these medications and they're very, very effective for diabetes and PCOS. And, you know, I mean, a lot of patients, you know, may may come to me asking for these. And if they don't have one of these other conditions, it's a different kind of conversation. It has to become, you know, well, all your numbers are really good. Why do you want to lose weight? And then having to talk about, well, these medications, while they're effective, while you're taking them, once you stop them, they may not be effective. And, you know, there are some side effects involved. And I'm, I'm open, you know, like I have the side effect, you know, the side effect profile and I talk to them about it and, and I say, you know, it may dysregulate, you know, your normal appetite and things like that. But like, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to use them. I really don't. But, 
you know, I'm, I'm open to like hearing what people's objectives are, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's tough because people come to endocrinologists because endocrinologists really are like weight loss doctors, you know, there are like the obesity clinics and things like that. So, you know, people will seek me out just to come in to like get help losing weight. So I have to kind of say, well, I'm going to really focus on these metabolic markers and your blood pressure and all these things. And, and let's take it from there, you know? If you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a few questions now about the American healthcare system. I'm fascinated by it. We, we work in very, very different <laughs> healthcare systems. It, where I work, you get told constantly, don't order this unless you absolutely have to because it costs money and we're trying to save money. And I hear people talking to me about their experiences of the American healthcare system and how I was told, and I don't know if this is true, that, that it's the number one cause of bankruptcy is, is, is the healthcare is, you know, is, is healthcare. How does that feel as a doctor? I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, not in a non-judgmental way. Like how does, how do you feel about your healthcare system? Yeah, it's tough because thankfully, you know, the people that are in the system and like have the means, like have access to, to great healthcare, right? I mean, like any testing, like any, you know, cancer treatment, like diabetes, like you name it, it's there. But that's not everyone, you know, and there's people that are rationing insulin, a life-saving medication, because they can't afford it. That is heartbreaking. You know, I, during my training, I spoke in Congress about kind of having a public option. And I spoke about, you know, patients in the hospital who didn't have insurance. It's just a revolving door because they kept coming in and out with uncontrolled diabetes and you just send them out with a prescription and you're and there's no way they're going to fill it because they can't. This is just so futile. Yeah, it, it's really tough. And, you know, even like SGLT2 inhibitors, which are the Jardians and Farxia, a new class of diabetes medication, um, is a pill that works really, really well. I just saw a study come out that showed a significant discrepancy in the amount of white people that are getting prescribed this medication versus blacks and Asians are getting it less. And the amount of diabetes generally is higher in, in the other populations, right? But they're not getting this new class of medications, which is cardioprotective, renally protective, I'm sorry, kidney protection and heart protection. I feel like, you know, we're colleagues, but I want to make sure everyone knows what I'm saying. Protect the kidneys, protect the heart. And it's being prescribed less because they're expensive. They're usually only like commercial insurance based. So for people like in the UK, that means that they have private insurance. And they're not getting this medication. So therefore, their outcomes may not be as good. I prescribe them like Smarties because they work so well. Yeah. I love them. And, you know, to be the point, we've got to the point now where they're not our first choice. Metformin is always our first choice. But for me, they're often an injectable probably, but like we'll, we'll, we'll decide and we'll move around. They are our favorite choice of medication. And what's really interesting in the UK is that you pay a prescription charge every time you get a prescription. It's, it's like 12, $13, something like that. Universally, it doesn't matter what medication you get prescribed. It's a one universal fee. But if you're diabetic, it's free. Anybody who's diabetic gets all their medication for free because we know how much uh, medication diabetics use. So I tr struggle to get my head around a person having to make a choice about like the, the best form 
of care versus the care that they can afford. And I think that, as you say, it's disproportionately affecting uh, minority groups and, and also fat, you know, fat people, because of course we know that, that fat people earn less money. They are less likely to earn a good wage. They are more likely to live in poverty. They are more likely to have poorer education levels. You name it. There's a lot of environmental factors involved mm-hmm. in weight, weight gain as well. So I think that we are actively, the medical profession accidentally or intentionally is oppressing large groups of people and is discriminating against them and, and, and they are not receiving the right kind of healthcare. And that kind of, that makes me really sad, especially in terms of, you know, when I hear these stories about people not, not wanting, you know, not getting the right medications because they just can't afford them. Right. I mean, there's something in the, there's something in the US with Medicare, which is our senior kind of insurance based government healthcare. And there's something called a donut hole, which like once they spend a certain amount of money for the year on their prescription medications, then they have to come out of pocket for like several thousand dollars until their insurance kicks back in. So it's like all these people, like these older people on fixed incomes that like come like October, November, they've like already met like their max for the year. And then they're just like, all right, I got three more months. I'm not going to like spend enough out of pocket to like let it kick in until January. So it's like calls nonstop to the office. Hey, you have any samples of this insulin? You have any samples of this pill? If you do the math, like you got to figure like these people, unfortunately, will like end up in the hospital or dehydrated from high blood sugar. That's got to be more expensive across the board, you know, than just covering the medication. I would think, I mean, I'm not an economist, heart surgery and like amputations a lot more expensive than giving someone a pill for like a year. 100%. Wow. This has been an amazing conversation. I thank you so much for joining. I have learned a lot. I genuinely have. And I am so excited to hear your voice. You know, I, I think I personally am sort of often as, as a person who's always been in like a fat body, I, I am wary of people who aren't. And that's not to say that, 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 you know, I, I'm admitting to this. This isn't, this is my issue. This is my prejudice. I always think that people who haven't experienced it themselves, who stand up and say, this is just not okay because it's not okay. Not because of something that I've experienced, but it's just, it's not okay. We need to do better. I have the greatest admiration, especially because I know you're getting a lot of crap and people are being really horrible to you. And you know, you are taking it on the chin and you're still dancing every Friday and you make me very, very happy. And honestly, it it feels good. Like I said, it feels so good to be, to be able to say like, look at my colleague across the pond. He is an absolute legend. I've actually even referred some patients to you. I don't know if you know this, but there are some people that come to me that so they're like, I'm living in this area. And I'm like, I know an endocrinologist. Oh, thank you. And so I think, you know, you're an amazing guy. Thank you so much for joining Thanks me. Thanks for having me. Um, this was great. Where, before we go, where can people find you? Where, where would we find you if we were looking for you? So on Instagram, everything underscore endocrine. Um, I'm on there and, uh, my website for my office practice, central park endocrinology.com. And, uh, I'm around. I mean, we're all like available and accessible these days, good or bad, you know, like we're, you know, you can find me. And you mentioned your amazing wife, Alexis. I'm so excited that she's going to be joining me Me later on in the series. She is an absolute legend. She has written a book. It's coming out. Do you know when it's coming out? When's the date? The end of June, like June 28th, something like that. Like right before, yeah, right before the end, end of June. Yes. It's great. 
I don't know if I'm allowed to announce this or not. I, I'll better check with her before we put this out. But I have an early copy. So I've already been reading it. Nina, Nina, Nina. And it's amazing. That was like, you know, I know we're we're going to have to wrap up, but that was like a lot of final convincing argument for me, like reading the research that she has in there and just outlining all the studies and like all the stuff and the personal stories from like her patient. I mean, it's not like a patient, but just like the cumulative like story. Yeah, check it out. That's what changed you. And I, I think this is it. I think that, you know, books like this are essential reading for medical students. I think if you're like first year medical student, read this book, listen to what they have to say, because if you can get it early, like, you know, prevention is better than cure. And let's get young student daughters, be, you know, even younger than that, reading this and kind of going, wow, I need to just change. And I am very encouraged by the number of medical students that have approached me and have said, this isn't, this isn't right. I want to, I want to learn things your way. And I am so excited about that. So books like this, you know, they are going to do wonders, I think, for the, for the medical profession, for the healthcare profession at large. Yeah, I hope so. So I'm super excited to meet her and to talk to her. Send her my love in the meantime. I'm excited to listen to that one. Yeah, I will. And thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can find out how to connect with all my guests and join my private Facebook community, Friends of the Fat Doctor. All the information is in the show notes. And I hope you'll join me next time.